so this is Young Persons Radio here on Radio Free Brooklyn. I am your host, Colby Smith, and my guest today is a writer whose pieces about politics and culture have appeared in The New Republic, The Outline, Slate, Truth Dig, The Baffler, and more. He's also the author of two novels, The Bend of the World and The Doorposts of Your House and On Your Gates. And I have been dutifully following his work ever since he used his blog to write a nasty review of the movie Skyfall. Who else could it be but Pittsburgh's own Jacob Bacharach? That's that that's one of my favorite blog posts i ever wrote really <laughs> yeah i i, I there's i there, there are a few things that i like more than reviewing trashy movies it's true i mean that one that one i think uh hipped me to what i would say is like one of the most fun things about your writing that i enjoy is like you've got something as seemingly insignificant as a james bond movie and as you read the post it's like oh we're talking to you now about how metaphor works in narrative <laughs> <laughs> yeah well i think that um i uh, i think there's a uh, probably too much of a tendency in a lot of um a lot of critical culture though maybe maybe less so now in the internet era but to to sort of um look uh down down the nose at like these pieces of cultural ephemera um these sort of bits of pop culture that that are um you know instantly popular and and also sort of instantly forgettable um but uh i i have a suspicion that a lot of a lot of these like goofy blockbusters and, and so forth that we sort of write off as being these sort of brief moments in time are gonna um, somehow outlive the current cultural moment in ways that a lot of our really important, uh, what we think are really important cultural uh, artifacts are not. So um, it's sort of just interesting to think about the way that they um, work and uh, reflect uh, a sort of a contemporary narrative um, and, and to treat them with the same, I don't know, uh, gin-eyed seriousness that we would treat an actually important novel or, or something right yeah i mean even just like anecdotally you know like our pe people are going to remember more where they were when you know like the dark knight came out versus like where they were when they saw parasite for example oh yeah that's that's for sure um i mean it's uh they are they are cultural moments i mean and and, and maybe they're not maybe they're not necessarily um, sort of cultural moments in the same sense as some, you know, piece of important literature or, you know, great piece of, you know, late 20th, early 21st century drama. But I, I don't know, you know, the tentpole Christopher Nolan franchise has at least got to be the equivalent of like a World's Fair a hundred years ago or something. Totally. It's this, this sort of like singular uh, m moment of cultural coming together where everybody shows up to, you know, marvel at the sun sphere. Right. Well, even, <laughs> I mean, just sticking with the uh, the James Bond example, it's like looking at these, like the past 50 years of that franchise is like a crazy, like parallel cultural history almost where you see them kind of like reflect, like even like, uh, like after Star Wars is when they do Moonraker and then like in the 80s when Lethal Weapon is popular, they like try and go in that direction. Like it's sort of this like, this strange, like, like parallel history of the movies in a weird way. Yeah, and what's what's interesting too is um, the way that it sort of the way that they then sort of refract back, um, refract themselves back, so that you know each successive um, addition in those sorts of long-running franchises, or the or like Batman, a franchise that keeps getting reinvented as new franchises, is like functions not only as a sort of reflection of 
whatever has just gone on in, in the sort of culture and politics, but also as a commentary on whatever its immediate predecessor was. Yes. Um, and and that's that's interesting too. I, I think I wrote, uh, I think it might've been a series of tweets, but uh, about the this sort of like fractal nature of Star, Star Wars mm. um, and how every, every successive Star Wars is, um, is just a further um, sort of like kaleidoscopic fragmentation of the prior Star Wars until, oh, yeah. uh, you know, it's, it, it's easy enough to laugh at that sort of thing, but it's, it's also, I don't know, it's, it's, it's fascinating. I, I, I like to go see this, these movies just to, just to see that happen. Right. Well, you can, I feel like you can really see it in this most recent trilogy that they just wrapped up where oftentimes there would be entire scenes just dedicated to, Oh, this plot point from the previous movie, we're not so interested in that anymore. Well, yeah, well, sure, absolutely. But the thing is, you know, if you look at any type of serialized entertainment, you know, you look at the great serialized um, works of literature from like the late 19th century, and you kind of see the same thing happening from episode mm. to episode. Like you, you see, um, you you see you know the 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 Dickenses or the Thackerays as they write these kind of great sprawling narratives, kind of like wor working through as they write week to week, um, what needs to be what threads need to be drawn through and which ones simply need to be discarded and what works and what doesn't work. Right. Um, in a way that you know kind of gets lost once you get into the sort of like totter, um, more psychological constructs of like high modernism or or what have you. So I, the sort of modern serialized um, fr franchise entertainment. Um, does the does the same does the same thing, um, and I think that it's it sometimes gets written off as sort of movies doing fan service to themselves. Um, Star right. Wars is sort of the, the one that gets most frequently dinged with that. Um, but I, I think that's I think as much as those movies are pure horseshit, I, I also think that <laughs> that um, that undercredits them a little bit because I think that there's something a little bit more interesting. Um, uh, going on, which is this sort of um, uh, this sort of real time feedback loop between um, the the feelings of the fans, the um, interests of the creators, the interests of the owners of the property that the creators are ultimately being forced to recreate. There's uh, there's there's something happening there. I haven't quite fixed it in my mind, but it, it's more interesting than just saying that people are writing um, fan fiction uh, with a multi million dollar budget. Right. Yeah, well, I think you, uh, I think Star Wars is kind of maybe the best example of this at this point, because you see it in the credits even of the movies of just how many corporate voices are being represented just in the crafting of the thing. Yeah, I mean, you know, again, I'm, I'm you know, comparing, comparing them to, to the World's Fair, I think is, is kind of deliberate. I mean, they're not... Right. They're they're really these kind of like or or to the Olympics maybe is another is another good point of comparison you know it's it's this sort of like massive yet temporary uh, industry slash production line that that sets up and uh, employs hundreds thousands of people across vast geographic distances for hundreds of millions of dollars all to produce this kind of like um, singular product and then that product is is deconstructed part by part and and sold off in the form of you know subsidiary images and toys and games and 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 products and licenses and so forth and then the whole thing happens again it's it's a it's from a, a mode of production standpoint it, it's right. pretty fascinating how that all happens right so what i'm hearing is you and me we're taking a trip to florida we're going to the star wars park <laughs> <laughs> 
Abs- absolutely. I, yes. I mean, I need my I need my um, N95 Darth Vader helmet before yeah, I go yeah. anywhere to the state of Florida. But but eventually, yeah, we'll get there. That's a very good point. Darth Vader is kind of like one of the great original models for PPE, if you think about it. Oh, damn, yeah, full body, yeah. <laughs> he's, he's not catching anything. I mean, you have to figure that after after uh, the uh, unfortunate uh, incidents at the end of episode three, he, he probably is somewhat immunocompromised. And so um, it, it, it makes sense that they'd give him, uh, they, they, they put him on the front line of, of personal protection. Yes. Yeah, he didn't have the high ground. So, you know, I don't know what he expected. Yeah, well, that, absolutely. I mean, uh, uh, he, you, that's, that is the one thing that uh, everybody learns when they read I, whatever piece of military history that they read is having the high ground. <laughs> you got to have the high ground. Uh, Jacob, we have been, uh, uh, as uh, our listeners know at this point, doing the show on Zoom instead of live in the studio lately. And uh, uh, we like to start our interviews with a segment that we like to call how are you holding up these days? Uh, that, sounds, that sounds dire, but I'm game. <laughs> <laughs> so, Jacob Bacharach, how are you holding up these days? Uh, you know, um, God, I hope I don't sound callous by saying this, but things could be worse. Yes. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I happen to be in the middle um, uh, of reading... Uh, book Life and Fate um, by Vasily Grossman, which is this kind of um, magisterial um, Soviet era, uh, 800 page fictional history of the Battle of Stalingrad and um, and the sort of Soviet Union at the uh, sort of high point of the Second World War. Um, and I, I, it's, it's an incredible an incredible book. Um, it's taken me forever to get through because I can only mm. read it in, in snippets at a time really interesting piece of um, Soviet realism um, and a really good reminder um, that that shit could be a whole heck of a lot worse. Mm. Um, so I, I take that as some small comfort. Um, and I'm, I'm sort of out in the provinces. I, I live in Pittsburgh. Right. Um, things have not been necessarily trending in the right direction here mm. lately, but in terms of the sort of overall scope of the disaster, both in terms of the actual human health effects, um, the economic dislocation and so forth. We're at least slightly insulated, I think, from some of the the worst uh, of of what's going on in the in the COVID era. Mm. Um, and I'm, I guess, a fortunate, you know, uh, asshole knowledge worker who's more or less been able to keep working from home. Um, so uh, from that perspective, uh, not too bad, you know. On the other hand, my whack job, uh, QAnon great aunt and uncle are hosting in-person buffet fundraisers for Republican candidates in their, oh, in their house, twenty <laughs> minutes outside of the city. So, um, uh, it's a, a a mixture of uh, hunkered down hope and complete despair. Yes, yeah, some real peaks and valleys in that answer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So for the the from the. Uh, Sublimely ridiculous to the ridiculously sublime. Yes. Uh, I'm so glad you brought up Russia just now, because this is a great segue into uh, one of the many things I wanted to talk to you about, just because you've you've written on such a, um, 
a sort of a long list of subjects and and Russia is kind of one that we uh, um, often revisit uh, in your work. And I would just tell you that anytime you go on a Twitter rant that's about how um, the US is a lot more like end end of the era Soviet Union than current day Russia is, uh, I have friends and I who all text that to each other. <laughs> <laughs> you can, He's at it again. <laughs> that's, yeah, uh, well, I, I, I stand by it. Um, oh, it's out it's, of it's out of complete support. <laughs> <laughs> it, I mean, you can you can certainly take that metaphor too far, um, and and uh, and so I I try I try to you know sort of temper it with at least a little bit of uh, a wink and a nudge because yes. there are, it, it, there are, there's obviously a degree to which it's hyperbolic, but but I do think that um, you know thinking about. Uh, thinking about the sort of like late stage um, Soviet Union and thinking about the the immediate post Soviet history of Russia during during shock therapy and and all of the dislocations of the 90s um, does present a really interesting parallel to um, to the United States uh, in its current sort of like late imperial form. Um, we we have the advantage uh, to sort of go back to World War II of not having, you know, lost 40 or 50 million people in a single mid-century cataclysm. And so we, um, we have a different, different material circumstances in this country than, than the Soviets uh, did uh, less than a generation after that. But nonetheless, there are a lot of obvious parallels in the sort of, the sort of um, gerontocratic way that our, our government has developed into a sort of uh, rule by, by a few Gerontocrats right, um, right. in the the sort of ossification of the entire um, public sphere in the way that these sort of crackpot statistics are mobilized, you know, so that I don't know our, you know, Donald Trump talking about how we have the most tests in the world is like you know the record harvest of wheat. Yes. There, there are all these kind of like neat neat parallels, and I think that the the sort of like. Uh, kind of Russiagate hysteria that you saw on on the liberal side, which makes Russia this kind of great unknowable other on the other side of the world. Um, it, this this uh, uh, bizarro inverse of the U.S. is is not quite right. They're they're more like you know if you're a science fiction fan like me, you know they're they're more like the kind of very near parallel world. You know, not not where Kirk and Spock are evil and have you know mustaches, but where <laughs> there there are just these. Slight, slight differences between our reality and that reality, um, where theirs is maybe a little more, or was maybe a little more um, heightened in certain ways than ours, but uh, nonetheless, uh, where it's very recognizable. Do you think that, sort of tying together some of the threads that you were talking about just now, do you think that the sort of continued Russiagate hysteria that now is manifesting in the, you know, the <laughs> Russia is put is paying the Taliban to kill U.S. soldiers, you know, news thread. Is it just because, you know, boomers are so uh, just sort of set in their sort of Cold War rivalries um, and, you know, are still the most prominent voices sort of in mainstream media? Like, is that where it sort of continues to come from? I, you know what, I, I've, I've been asking myself that question um, God, I don't know for how long. Ever since RussiaGate started, ever since right. the New Republic commissioned me to write five thousand words about Rachel Maddow at the height <laughs> of RussiaGate, um, and I don't, I don't have a neat answer for mm. it. I'm not. It, uh, it's hard for me to 
put my finger on what it is about the that that mid 20th century rivalry with a state that you know no longer exists you know there is no ussr there is no communist russia there is no communist bloc there is for all intents and purposes no second world so to speak anymore right. um so what what continues to make it so um visceral um as an enemy and as a foil um and as a mm. sort of boogeyman in the american imagination and well i think that as the way that you phrased it in the question there's some salience there Sh sure just sort of um the the cold war hangover of a boomer generation that came of age with russia still as the sort of looming geopolitical enemy has something to do with it but i i think that there's I think that there's something deeper there. Sure. Um, to some extent, uh, simply the fact that, you know, um, Russia is, I mean, even though it's an Asian power as much as a European power, it's, it is a sort of European country, it's a white country, and it never, never knuckled under to American hegemony. Right. Um, and, and I think that that alone makes it uh, an obvious, uh, an obvious sort of counterpart, especially for the sort of conspiracist tendencies yeah. On, yeah. on the left in this case. I mean, I wonder too if it's just, if it's as simple as nostalgia for when there was one bad guy. Yeah, I, I, there's, there's, I mean, you can, you can clearly see that in the way that, you know, the sort of uh, attempt, every depiction of, uh, of Russia being the sort of like uh, scary inverted color of St. Basil's Cathedral, which everybody seems to confuse with the Kremlin. It's even the though Kremlin, they're two, yeah. There yeah. are different things. And, you know, uh, Putin constantly being depicted in these sort of like um, uh, uh, vague intimations of kind of like Soviet realism uh, and, and uh, the the way that the sort of symbology of the USSR is sort of conflated with the symbology of modern Russia. Mm. Um, all, all of those things definitely suggest a certain like nostalgia um, for that, uh, for that period of sort of bipolarity. Um, but again, that having been said, you know, I, I, there are lots of people who are, who are my age and younger, who I know who, who are sort of more on the, the uh, liberal end of the left liberal spectrum who mm. are equally uh, taken by it, who who watched and watch uh, Maddow uh, and her ilk uh, just as obsessively, who are just as convinced that uh, a few Russian troll farms were this the sort of like singular fulcrum on which the 2016 election turned, um, and who are happy to to drop into your uh, into your Twitter mentions or whatever to, you know, accuse you of being a Russian agent or a bot, whatever, <laughs> they don't know what that means, but whatever that means, yes. um, at the, you know, at, at the slightest complaint about, about, uh, Democrats, for example. Um, and I can't explain its salience to someone. I mean, I'm, I'm almost 40 years old. I, I, I sort of remember when there was a Soviet Union, anyone younger right. than me doesn't. And so what, how that continues to have a, a cultural, and a psychological pull. I don't, I don't get it. Yeah. I wish yeah. I did. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it was uh, you who wrote about its sort of role in the 2016 election and sort of that aftermath is, you know, kind of paraphrasing uh, a lot, you know, from, from uh, your work is that sort of, if, if we kind of blame the election on Russian interference, it sort of lets the left off the hook from learning from its own mistakes. Yeah, I it, well, I would I would actually put 
a a finer point on it. I mean, I think that it I think that it lets liberalism off the hook more more so than the left. I mean, sure, sure. I'm I, and I I make that point because I I am not a person who thinks that the left has any actual particular power in the United States, and I think that the the sort of um, conflation. Uh, the understandable conflation of the sort of like left with like democratic with party Democrat, liberalism. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I'm I'm not a person who's going to go in too hard on that because it makes perfect sense the way that sort of coalitional politics works in the U.S. in the two-party system that those things would happen. But I I think that it's a real it's what it what it represents is a failure to reckon with with the failure of the the sort of liberal part of that coalition. Right. Um, to come up with any type of um, real sort of um, countervailing political project to the project of the political right. They're, they're mm. sort of like endless negotiating against the center um, and their abandonment of the sort of mid-century um, FDR style uh, kind of like, you know, um, buy the people off with social programs or else they're going to go commie. <laughs> sort of like just, just the uh, total abandonment of that in favor of, of uh, neoliberal austerity right. um, at every turn and belief that the private sector is going gonna, is gonna, to uh, sort of innovate us out of whatever our current cultural malaise is at every right. turn. Um, I think the failure to reckon with that um, is, maybe, is, is maybe the most... Uh, salient aspect of it all. Mm -hmm. Do you see sort of the Clinton presidency as, as the point at which that sort of, that sort of starts to turn in that way? Or does it start sooner? No, it starts sooner than that. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, it, it, it starts under Carter. I sure, mean, sure, or, yeah. Or it starts the minute FDR kicked the bucket. Exactly. I don't, I don't, <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't know where exactly you would you would put the inflection point, but I, sure. I, Clinton. I my hatred for Bill Clinton knows very few bounds. <laughs> um, but but I think that there is a tendency on the left now, as distinct from liberalism, to look at the Clintons as being this this real kind of like hinge point at which you know the whole you know the t taking taking the era of big government is over at its word and making Bill Clinton into this kind of very seminal historical figure. Right. Um, when in reality, I think he kind of like rode, I mean, he certainly sort of just rode the post Reagan wave in a lot of ways, but mm. most of, um, you know, mo most of the rhetoric that the Clintons um, utilized when it came to welfare reform and when they talked about the era of big government and so forth was really just sort of warmed over Reaganism. And as much as we like to draw a distinction between, you know, sort of Reagan as this great, you know, kind of evil uh, anti-government, you know, Cold Warrior and Carter as being this kind of genial fellow, you know, liberal fellow who put what solar panels on the roof of the White House and uh, dared to speak about conservation and so forth. And in, uh, in reality, uh, the, the Carter presidency, particularly when it came to foreign policy, mm. um, had a lot of uh, continuity with the, the ones that followed as well. So, um, you know, I, I think that the 70s marked and, and the shocks, the economic and social shocks of the 70s writ large were, were kind of really what marked the inflection point where gotcha. the U.S. began to make that shift. Where, yeah, I see. Yeah. Um, 
sort of uh, um, keeping it with the thread we've been talking about as far as like the resemblance to late Soviet era, uh, <laughs> Soviet Union. Um, I want to talk about one of your, one of my favorite pieces of yours, which I have like gone back to, you know, it sort of remains extreme, extremely relevant as, you know, Amazon just kind of continues to grow and grow. Um, and this is the, the piece that was originally on Alternate and now is available on Slate about their acquisition of Whole Foods. Um, yeah. And I think it's kind of the, it's a very key piece for me in terms of, it's kind of like the central metaphor for what I think is one of your major themes in terms of your writing about politics, which is that there's all this money in America that is just put in all the wrong places, uh, where the, you know, the like Amazon is this, you know, extremely rich company, but meanwhile, you know, the, the, the shelves on the grocery store are empty. Well, yeah, and, and actually, I mean, I, I would even, uh, I would even step back a little bit further than that. And one of the points that I, I made, I think by implication in, in that piece, if not yeah. explicitly, um, is that, you know, the great symbol of uh, capitalist success versus uh, communist failure um, of, the, of the 70s and 80s was the image of the empty grocery shelf, right? Yes. Um, yeah, the, the bread line. Um, in in uh, communist Eastern Bloc versus you know the 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 plenty of uh, an American grocery store and in fact you even continue to see that symbology a little bit today you saw it um, with I think Ted Cruz at one point was posting photos of shelves in uh, in Cuba that were um, you know all stocked with like uh, you know generic O's as opposed to you know you go into the a grocery store here in the United States, and there are just thousands and thousands and thousands of different types of O's that you can eat for breakfast cereal. I mean, they're all identical; they're just in different packages. But you know, there, there you go, and that, that's taken as being the sort of triumph of our system versus theirs. Right. Um, but what the what you realize, and and the Whole Foods example is a great one, is that you know um, scarcity is often artificial, and it's the product of um, bad systems and bad systematic decision making and um, uh, sclerotic uh, systems of production and distribution that can occur just as easily under our quote unquote you know uh, wealthiest country in the world uh, as they can under a, a purportedly impoverished you know communist nation. What happened with Amazon was they took over Whole Foods. Whole Foods basically had structured itself as this kind of, you know, boutique store where a great deal of the value proposition, the reason that you paid more or at least marginally more for the things that you bought there was that the experience of being there, it looked nice. Uh, it was, uh, it, everything was clean. Everything was organic. Uh, the staff were purportedly higher paid and held to higher standards. And so there was a, an experience of luxury in going into those places, for better or worse. That was the right. value proposition, right? And then Amazon took it over, and they, they even actually before they took it over, the corporation had begun to do this to goose its goose own stock, stock prices. Yeah. Um, you, you had the, the imposition of these kind of um, just-in-time systems for stocking, even within the stores. So uh, all of a sudden, overnight, uh, certain popular products couldn't be stocked fast enough, so they just disappeared from the shelves. So you'd, you'd walk into a Whole Foods, a place that used to look like, you know, it was like uh, the MoMA if everything on the walls was made of food. And, uh, and you found that there were, you know, you couldn't get 
cr table water crackers, you know, some, some very banal item would just not be there. Oh, all of a sudden you can't get cans of peeled tomatoes. They're just, they haven't been restocked yet. Or you'd, you'd walk into the produce section and there would be, you know, three heads of, of wilted cabbage and some poor underpaid uh, immigrant stock boy trying desperately to maneuver a giant cart of new cabbages through an absolutely, you know, thronged produce section to refill them as fast as possible. And, and, uh, and you began to see that the imposition of what were within a corporate context, effectively austerity measures, way to, to cut costs to the barest bone possible and to mm -hmm. get the barest minimum necessary provision to the people, in this case, the customers who needed it, um, had the effect of in, you know, creating a, a, a late Soviet grocery store where, <laughs> you, you, where you'd, you'd walk in and, you know, uh, the rich ladies could still get their caviar, but you couldn't get any apples that weren't bruised. Right. Yeah, uh, I mean, certainly. I mean, this, this, this piece, I think, for me, just kind of is such a powerful metaphor for kind of the, the ways in which... Um, uh, sort of the forces that, you know, we tend to talk about in these kind of very like abstract terms in terms of how they uh, operate within American political society, how they just sort of affect the day to day life of the citizens, you know, so the, you know, we've the, 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 the GDP, which I know you've written about is like not a great way to, to determine the wealth, quote unquote, of a particular nation. And yet, you know, it's this it's this accepted thing. Meanwhile, you know, the trains are breaking down all the time and the sh shelves are empty in the stores. Yeah, I mean, the if you look at the physical infrastructure of the, of the United States, and I, I use that term or that concept pretty broadly to, you know, to mean not just the roads, although our roads are in bad shape, and not just the railroads, although our railroads are in terrible shape. <laughs> um, yeah. But, but just sort of the built environment in which we in which we live, um, it, it is phenomenally impoverished compared to um, pretty much any other what, what we would call developed or you know industrialized country. Pick, pick your problematic term there, but mm. um, and, and it, when you when you travel abroad, and I I've said before, you know I don't mean to overvalorize you know the EU or South Korea or you know the other advanced countries. They've got sure. their own their own problems and, and their own inequities, um, certainly. Um, but, you know, when you compare the quality of our pharmacies, uh, our provision of medical services, our transportation systems, or, you know, frankly, our, our shitty internet um, to just about anywhere else, um, you, you rapidly begin to see that for as high as our GDP is and as high as our uh, per capita GDP is and is relatively high, though not quite as high as our um, purchasing power parity measures of GDP are. Um, we're we're poor, yeah. <laughs> or at least middle at least middle income maybe is the way I would say. Right. <laughs> um, much more comparable to uh, a a supposedly developing country um, than to to a, to other advanced ones. The the U.S on a the sort of physical infrastructure maybe with the exception of the interstate highway system uh is a lot more similar to like uh the the little time that i spent in a place like brazil than it is to uh western europe for example right right um one one more thing about amazon before we move on to another uh 
uh, sort of related subject is is there any point in these big tech hearings in congress <laughs> like will anything come from this uh you'll color me extremely skeptical um <laughs> I, I i i don't i don't really think that the us government and certainly not the congress is currently constituted um is is capable um or interested frankly right. in in doing anything more than um you know maybe complaining complaining and and picking around the edges a little bit um i think that uh I, the hearings themselves, I mean, they were they, they were okay. The, some, some of the Democrats were somewhat prepared. They managed to ask a few uncomfortable questions, though I don't think that they did any particular lasting damage. The hmm. uh, GOP side um, either spun off into Fantasias or just complained about being shadow banned or, you know, yes. that Facebook isn't conservative enough, which is hysterical. <laughs> it's insane. It's, it's just Facebook is, I mean, is conservative, yes. <laughs> um, and uh, and 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 that points to something that I'm extremely skeptical of, which is that there are a number of voices on the on the putative left now who, uh, and and they range from from folks like Matt Stoller to, to Glenn Greenwald and a number of other commentators, who, um, uh, for whatever reason, I, I can't understand it because I think that they're at least intelligent people, even where I disagree with them, mm. have just gone kind of full hook, line, and sinker for this notion that there is a constituency within the Republican Party that is actually interested in trust busting, mm. and that is actually interested in regulating American capitalism to some extent beyond uh, simply continuing to work the refs of uh, big media companies, which all these tech firms are now, right. uh, in the same way that they've been doing for the last 50 years. Um, I don't believe that. I don't think that there is any appetite or willingness within that party, uh, even on the margins, to legislate against consolidated corporate power in the U.S. If I'm proven wrong, I'll be very pleased, but I don't think I'm going to be proven wrong. Yeah, I mean, it's it really just kind of feels watching what I did of the hearings. It just kind of it was it was pathetic. It was just like, you know, half the people don't even really know how these companies work. And the rest of it just sort of felt like all for show. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, you know, to to an extent, that's that's just the, the diminishment of our legislative apparatus in this country. I mean, for for the last. 70 years, the legislature has basically given more and more of its power over to the executive. Um, right. That's, you know, that used to be the most, the most observable when it came to, you know, sort of war making and, and national security, you know, where like all of a sudden, after World War Two, we just, you know, as everybody knows, we stopped declaring war, the executive basically took took over. Um, uh, all of the, the uh, military uh, decision making, I mean, they always made military decisions, but the decision about when to go to war and where to go to war and with whom to go to war. And then after 9-11, you know, you kind of got these continuing authorizations for the use of military force that basically said the president can do whatever he wants anywhere in the world as long as it's vaguely connected to the war on terror. Um, but I think that now you're seeing the further, you know, erosion that, that came with that sort of um, abrogation of responsibility where if it's not, if the regulatory administrative state isn't doing it, then Congress certainly isn't going to do it. And right. under someone like Donald Trump, and frankly, if Joe Biden, you know, 
uh, wins the presidency, inshallah, I guess. I think under him as well, you're not going to see uh, any type of uh, real interest in the administrative agencies to go after these big companies. Right. I mean, why, why would they? They're all going to go work there after three years. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> um, <laughs> Not not an entirely uh, unrelated point. I want to uh, kind of shift to here uh, briefly. Is um, you know there was a, a, a article in the New York Times on Monday of this week that was about how a third of the city's small businesses are expected to close as a result of the pandemic, uh, particularly in the um, bar and restaurant uh, sector, and you know sort of contrasting that to. Amazon, which had its biggest quarter in history, I believe, this past quarter as a result of all the ordering that's going on under quarantine. I mean, it just sort of, it makes me wonder, you know, where New York City specifically, or really any city, uh, kind of goes from here and what what the, the, the business closures on mass as a result of the lockdown will kind of mean for cultural life in the city. I mean, you, you'll... Uh, pardon me for saying so from my hick view from out here in the provinces, but New York <laughs> is fucked. I yeah. Mean, you, you guys, you, you guys and, 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 and the West coast, um, have a, have a big problem on your hands. Um, and you know, uh, a couple years ago, uh, a writer who I really like, um, P. Moskowitz, they wrote a book um, called how to kill a city, which was a sort of like tour stories on of, uh, of the sort of changing world of lower, lower Manhattan, mostly. Um, right. And and largely was about the phenomena that we're just seeing accelerating even more now, um, which is the inability of any business other than, you know, like Chase Bank branches to operate in an environment where, you know, a 300-foot, square-foot storefront costs $20,000 a month. Right. Um, I mean, uh, you know, h- how many, like... Uh, uh, I don't know, artisanal soaps do you have to sell to, to make your nut uh, with with those kinds of occupancy costs? I mean, my my shameful background is that in addition to being a writer, I've got an MBA. And so, you know, I, I, I tend to look at these things in a fair kind of like with an accountant's perspective, I guess. And I look at a city like New York and anywhere in the core of the city until and, and even even going out into the into the into the outer boroughs, I, I don't understand how any business survives. Yeah. Um, yeah. And now, of course, here here's capitalism eating itself. Um, sure. I, you know, it basically turning itself into this giant version of a company store where all of the buildings in like Manhattan are owned by Chase Bank, and all of the buildings in Manhattan are Chase Bank paying rent to itself. <laughs> um, so uh, it, it's it's really. I mean, I think that what ultimately has to happen to save a place like New York is you've got to have like a 1970s style massive economic collapse and a bankruptcy, yes. which which drives which drives rents back into the ground. I don't see right. how else anything flows back into the city. I, I think that outside of the outside of you know New York, DC, San Francisco, you know, if you look at the kind of mid-sized cities in this country, mm. uh, there may be a little more room for resiliency, simply because. Uh, especially after the um, the collapse of 2007, 2008, you know, commercial real estate rebounded, but not didn't quite get that crazy. Um, and so, you know, there are places where you still have more regional and local developers 
who are a little bit more flexible in terms of resetting prices down. You know, you're not talking about the, you know, this sort of just like massive costs of uh, building in a place like New York City. Um, and so there may be a little bit more uh, a resiliency to use that word again um, in in local mercantile markets. Mm. But um, even in a place like, you know, like Pittsburgh, uh, uh, the Silicon Valley of Appalachia, where everybody's getting priced out by people who are moving here to work for Google because they don't, they can't afford to live in the Bay Area anymore, and Google's right. in Pittsburgh. Um, I, I I see the same trends playing out, just not as not as fast mm. and not as not as precipitously. Um, yeah. If your rent is, if you're a restaurant owner and your rent is a thousand bucks a month or five thousand bucks a month, then you can probably figure out a way to, you know borrow some money, do take out, string things along for maybe six months, um, you know, before you're totally screwed. Um, but if your rent's 20 grand, 30 grand, 40 grand, 50 grand, how, how do you do that? Yeah, I, I don't think it's no possible. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, you, it's, it's really, I mean, in terms of the, the point you made about it accelerating trends that have just sort of been long gestating, uh, and I'll just stick with New York as an example, because, uh, you know, just because I live here. Um, but, uh, you know, I mean, you, I could even see it in, you know, I've lived here for, you know, eight years and change now. And even in just that relatively short of time, you've seen whole neighborhoods get uh, you know, sort of cannibalized by, you know, the luxury condo epidemic. You know, it's just like, um, it really does not take that long anymore for this kind of thing to happen. And now with, you know, with the, the economic fallout of the pandemic, I just, I, I feel like nobody's got a chance. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, I was, the last time I was in New York, which was probably last year, um, I, I stayed in, uh, in a hysterical newly built like uh, pseudo luxury apartment hotel complex like in the middle of a bunch of parking lots and warehouses in Greenpoint uh, and at what <laughs> sounds and, right <laughs> yeah uh -huh, yeah it was and uh, a great deal on Expedia.com um, and I, I took a really long walk um, uh, one day when I was there, I walked kind of like south through Greenpoint, through Williamsburg and across the bridge into Manhattan and um, and walking through that part of Brooklyn. And I know that a lot of that is kind of ground zero for gentrification anyway. Yeah. But just, I mean, the number of, of just unbelievably hideous um, goofball, you know, kind of townhouse and condo complexes just being shoehorned into every every block, everywhere you looked was just astonishing to me and I just think to myself who lives here I, know. I mean where where do the people who can afford these places come from there there just can't be that many of them no it's so funny you say that because I was just saying to somebody the other day that I was just like look if they're going to gentrify our neighborhood can they at least make these buildings look like nice you know like build one out of bricks or something I don't know uh, yeah I mean honestly you if if you're gonna make me spend you know three million dollars on uh on a condo where i have to shower over the sink then <laughs> I, I feel like at least don't cover it in the cladding that you buy for you know uh 20 cents to the yard at the home depot i mean right. like give me a break brownstone's not that expensive seriously <laughs> just make a really big one you know i don't know <laughs> yeah right 
it is, but since we're talking about it, I have to say, anytime, since we're talking about your Twitter too, anytime you dunk on New York on Twitter, it's just like, it's, <laughs> it's great. I'll say it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, I, the phenomenon that I'm, that I like to make fun of is, is not unique to New York. I, I have a feeling it's, it's the same in, in London where I've spent less time. I, I know it's the same in, in Paris where I've spent a fair amount of time. Uh, and, and, you know, in any, in any big city. Um, but there is a, um, there's just a really funny phenomenon of the fact that, you know, like all of these sort of like magnet cities, these, these great global cities, um, which are the play, the places where, you know, all the hicks from the provinces who don't fit in at home go to, mm-hmm. um, the sort of con- conceive of themselves as being sort of like uniquely, um, uh, I don't know, uni- uniquely sophisticated and plugged in, um, yes. <laughs> but are so very, very inward looking um, in all of their sort of um, points of, of culture and reference and, are, and, uh-huh. and feel very disconnected from the rest of the country and, and the rest of the world in a lot of ways. Yes, uh, I, I'm with you. <laughs> um, but I don't know, maybe maybe that's sour grapes. Um, uh, but uh, on, on the other hand, uh, like I said, I think at the top of this interview right now, the uh, uh, the view from from Pittsburgh, uh, not just the Silicon Valley of Appalachia, but the the uh, uh, the Paris of Appalachia, um, it's it's a pretty good one. Um, you know, uh, it 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 feels a little bit more uh, I don't know socially sustainable in some sort of weird way to be yes. in a place that's a little bit uh, more off the beaten path. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I mean you know it. I moved here like right after college and, you know, um, turning 30, not too you know, far away. And it's just like you eventually you just learn, you know, it's the same wherever you go. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, it, uh, that that actually I have found to be sort of uh, relatively, relatively true. Yeah, everywhere. yeah. Except, except yeah. I, I, I always put this is the other thing I always plug on my on my Twitter page, except in the marvelous little country of Portugal, which um, after being just one of the absolute worst places in the world for like 500 years through right. uh, imperialism and, and fascism tur- turned itself into like a nice little place to live. And I, I, I still hold out hope that somehow that's going to happen to some like, you know, breakaway Eastern Republic of the United States, that it's just right. going to sort of turn into a like lazy little seaside community where um, everybody sort of takes their time and isn't rich, but seems to be living okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man. We can, we can dream Jacob. That sounds great. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But since we're talking about Pittsburgh, we've got to talk about your novels. Sure. Um, I, so I read the bend of the world uh, not too long after it was, after it was published on a trip, like on a train to Pittsburgh actually. Um, and it was like a really ideal way to consume uh, uh, that book. And I know you've said you've made a couple attempts at a novel before that one, but I was wondering like what it was about that story that finally made things click. Uh, oh man, that's that's a good question. Um, uh, it was uh, it was a couple of interlocking things. Um, part of it was that so I had been. I had been blogging. Remember blogs? Um, I do. Been, yeah, I'd been doing that for a while as a way to sort of uh, keep my creative uh, juices flowing, I guess, and was getting um, tired of it, uh, frankly, and um, 
also, I think probably was starting to sense that the wind was going out of the sails of that sort of um, kind of vibrant subsection of mm. the internet as places like uh, Twitter and Facebook just began to consume um, everything. Yeah. Um, so that, that sort of happened, which um, pitched me in the direction of maybe working a little bit more on a truly creative project. Um, I, uh, I was at the time kind of getting back into some of the great conspiracy literature that I had been uh, really obsessed with when I was, uh, when I had been younger. I, I wrote Bend of the World in my early 30s, and so I guess some of the stuff that I was really obsessed with when I was like in, in college and in my early 20s, I was starting to really get back into again, and that provided the impetus for a lot of the underlying, um, uh, kind of conspiracy themes um, in the book, um, and and then to be perfectly honest, purely by happenstance, I I met the guy who was going to become uh, went on to become my editor, and kind of got to talking with him, and he said, you know, hey, you you've alluded to the fact that you occasionally work on fiction. Like, what are you working on? Do you ever have something that you want to show me? Because I just got a job working for a publishing house, hmm. and I said, oh yeah, I've got this this great, you know, the first, first, uh, like, uh, quarter of a novel already finished. I'd, I'd love for you to take a look. It, it's in draft form. So let me, let me fix it up a little bit. Um, which was a complete lie because none of it was written. <laughs> right. Um, so I like, I sort of did the Anthony Burgess, like take a bunch of Dexedrine. Um, <laughs> yes. in, I think in my case, it was the mixture of Adderall and cocaine, but, um, I'll, we'll leave that speculative allegedly. <laughs> um, and uh, over, I think about a six-day period, uh, wrote about fifteen thousand words of the thing, and, uh, oh and sent, it to, sent it to him. <laughs> and he said, "Wow, this is this is this is pretty interesting." Um, the characters' names keep changing, but other than that, it's that is <laughs> so funny. <laughs> and uh, and so then I was committed. Um, right. And once I was committed, um, I actually did it. And that, frankly, had always been the thing that was. I think probably holding me back for the 10 years prior to that, which was, I just kept, you know, noodling around with opening lines for mm. books that never went anywhere. But then as soon as someone actually showed some interest in it, I, I, I buckled down and did the thousand word a day thing um, and, and pounded out a draft. Yeah. I guess we should back up uh, um, and describe the book a little bit for, for folks if they haven't read it, which is that it, it's, I guess it would be a, a coming of age story with aliens. Uh, right. <laughs> y- yeah, I, that's, I think that's a, that's a fair way to put it. I, I say yeah. it's a, it's a, it, it is a, um, a late coming of age story. You know, I sort of, um, uh, took as given the, the common, if somewhat unfair complaint that, you know, like, uh, people's, what used to be people's late teens and early twenties is now people's late twenties and early thirties. Mm. Um, and, and so, so it sort of took that as a starting point and uh, with a bunch of kind of uh, uh, late aughts, early 20-teens, um, uh, Pittsburgh-based characters all sort of trying to feel their way into some version of adulthood as they all sort of hovered around to turning 30. Um, and then overlaid it with two sort of separate um, uh, and very alien conspiracies, one of potentially literal aliens from outer space or another dimension and one of uh corporate aliens uh operating a giant subversive um corporate scam uh which had more in common than i initially imagined 
Um, and the intersection of all of those things ended up becoming the sort of uh, forward momentum of the book. Right. Um, real quick, before we have to unfortunately move on again, I wanted to talk about some of my kind of favorite moments that I still think about now, you know, like six years probably since uh, reading the book for the first time. And one was this line that's, that basically is a defense of office jobs, where <laughs> you say the office only crushes your, skull, uh, your soul if you're dumb enough to bring it to work. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think I compared it to um, uh, bringing your own lunch and putting it into your office refrigerator, knowing that someone is inevitably going to steal it. <laughs> Take it, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I'm. I mean, I've I've worked office jobs uh, since I was in my twenties, um, and continue to. And it's not for everybody, um, but uh, as a person who's a writer and uh, both a creative writer and uh, a uh, uh, an essayist and a, um, a commentator. I won't use the word journalist. I'm, I'm not that. Um, I uh, there's something there's something freeing about it as long as you can maintain a certain ironic distance from everything that goes on. Um, it's the the sort of um, uh, the the machinery of what I think it was maybe David Graeber was the one who coined the phrase bullshit job. But the the sort of machinery of that. Um, can be liberatory if you can scam your way into a relatively steady one and uh, give you a way to uh, follow creative pursuits and also observe people in their true natural habitat because um, most people spend most of their time working at least mm -hmm. in america these days and so i think that if you're going to write about america and about americans you've got to know what what it's like for them to be at work yes definitely um is there any more are you working on any new fiction projects these days? I'm uh, so I'm trying very hard uh, to uh, work my way through a manuscript for a novel that I've been working on for uh, it feels like years now because I think it has been years now um, that I I can't give too much away because it'll it'll jinx it all. But right, I will say course. that um, I will say that it involves um, uh, Pittsburgh, uh, Israel, uh, nuclear bombs. Uh, terrorism and potentially uh, magical creatures and transdimensional travel. <laughs> That's a Jacob Bacharach novel if I've ever heard one. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Uh, That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, coming, I won't say coming soon, but within the next two calendar years, I promise to have at least submitted a draft. Someday. Right. Are you, uh, are, are, where do you fall on this uh, uh, quarantine as productivity time? Oh no! Fuck no! Quarantine <laughs> is the worst time for productivity. Oh, it's awful. I, I've, I, I, I think I've read the same two books three times each in quarantine. Right. It, it's a. I, I am a person who was always speaking of having office jobs. Who's always been very productive by being able to kind of draw a line between when I'm when I'm working at my office and when I'm at home working and when I'm doing other things and. All of that now, all of those divisions have completely broken down. Oh, yeah. It's bad. it's bad for everything, and it makes it just really hard to kind of draw a bright line at the end of the working day and then say, all right, I'm going to go home. I'm going to, uh, you know, pour myself a glass of wine. I'm going to sit at the kitchen table, um, and I'm going to work on my novel for the next, you know, hour or two because, like, frankly, I'm, like, drinking wine and sitting working at the kitchen table all day anyways. <laughs> it never ends. <laughs> I'm with you on that one. So um, I don't know. Zadie Smith must not have the same sort of addictive personality that I yeah, do. Yeah, I guess she, not. She's figured it out. 
I guess not. Yeah. New new stories that are just about quarantine, right? Or yeah. all completed during quarantine. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, my stories about quarantine are all, honey, what do you want to order for lunch? Yeah, exactly. I don't know, honey, what do you want to order for lunch? <laughs> <laughs> well, sticking with the food metaphor for a moment, we've had our vegetables, Jacob, and now it's time for the dessert. Right. And I will ask you now the question that's on the tip of everyone's tongue, which is, what is the best Star Trek Next Generation movie? Oh, okay. That's that's a that's a really great question, and I I am going to uh, I am going to draw a bold line in the sand, and I am going to say that the best one is also the shittiest one, and that is Star <laughs> Trek Insurrection. Here we go. Yes, absolutely. The, I guess I should have backed up and said, "Is there a good one?" Uh, <laughs> No, <laughs> but insurrection comes the closest. I mean, I look. I have a soft spot in my heart for 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 First Contact. Um, Me too. First, first Contact is a, is a pretty well done movie. Um, uh, uh, meeting Zephram Cochran is uh, a, a lot of fun. Um, uh, uh, Troy, even though Marina Sirtis like just stopped caring. Uh, at all about any of those movies or about, <laughs> about acting in them. Uh, her uh, uh, getting drunk in uh, a shelter in Wyoming in post-World War III North America. Good, lots of high points in that one. Definitely. Um, but uh, regrettably, it's, it's just, it, I'm sick of the Borg. I don't care about the Borg. They were, they, they were, in, they were interesting, but they, they never, you know, you could never really develop them in the way that, like, the Klingons actually ended right. up becoming interesting, like, as you got into the original series movies as a as a real kind of um, uh, plot foil for the Federation. Um, and, and so, and also, I just, it's a bad time travel plot. Um, yeah. But Insurrection comes the closest in... Um, in spirit, I think, to the series itself. Um, that's why nobody liked it, because um, people are, are uh, too dumb and lazy now, I guess, <laughs> to, to, to appreciate that sort of thing. But, you know, the sort of basic setup in Insurrection um, is, is what you would find in, uh, in a good, in a good TNG episode, I think. You know, it's like, okay, there's these there's these people, they've got this special, in this, you know, in this case, they've got this kind of special environmental property. It could be some special technology. It could be some location of strategic uh, importance. And you've got, you know, the kind of competing factions within the Federation. You've got these kind of uh, alien allies who might have ulterior motives. And you've got Picard and the crew stuck in the middle of it, um, trying to figure out uh, the sort of ethical ramifications of what they're being asked to do and, and come up with a, a way to really um, to, to solve it to the best of their uh, 
of their ethical capabilities as advanced 24th century humans. Yes. Um, and it, it sets so, up a nice, uh, uh, what I think is an underrated Picard grandstanding speech. The, uh, the how many people does it take, Admiral? <laughs> that's, yeah, it's a good, it's, a, it's not the, you know, I mean, it's no, it's not the measure of a man, but it's a good Picard speech. Yeah, it's not bad. And I also have to, I mean, you know, Patrick Stewart is a foxy guy and I like <laughs> it when they give him a little love subplot. Uh, yes. I, I like, I was like Patrick Stewart's thing with uh, Vosh in the original series. Oh yeah. Um, I liked actually in, in uh, Measure of Man, I can't remember who the uh, Admiral's name was who became the judge in, in Data's trial, but he right. had a little thing with her. Um, and so I, his, his uh his little thing uh, with the baku was uh, uh it was cute i liked yeah, it you know it was everybody feeling their wild oats being teenagers again uh, yes. it was like what watching Riker get a close shave in the bath you know people think that's gross i i think it's charming <laughs> It was always so fun watching the show anytime they would give Picard a a like love story because he's such a like he's such an unromantic character in a way. Well, he's he Picard Patrick Stewart is a great actor, tr truly yeah. is a great actor and could always pull it off and and there are um there are the moments in the show, you know, where he talks about um where he in the character of Picard talks about how the character of Picard in turn is always acting because he's the captain. The captain right. has to has to project something that Picard the, isn't necessarily in its innermost core Picard the man. And you always saw these flashes of his um, more romantic self, you know, his love of architecture, his love of literature, his kind of antiquarian uh, nature. Um, all, all of those things kind of suggested a bit of a, a a romantic under that sort of uh, stern commanding personality. And so on the occasion when they would let that shine through a little bit, I, I, I always thought that was a neat way to build a little bit of depth. And, and interestingly, as much as people um, like to uh, shit on Bill Shatner, uh, particularly in the movies, you, you kind of got a sense of that as well. You know, like um, you, they, uh, as he was, as he was aging and getting older, you know, he wore his eyeglasses, he read his books, and they kind yeah. of, they, they did the same thing with both captains, and I always thought that was, that was sort of uh, a, a neat touch. Yeah, I, I think I would go with you on Insurrection being the best uh, movie, too, sort of for that reason where, I, I forget where I read this, but someone at some point likened it to having the same feel as just a really good two-part episode of the show. Yeah, I think that's I think that's fair. I think that was the red letter media guys who said that. Yes, that really, yes, of course. That sounds, that sounds really familiar to me. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, and, and although it does have some really like hysterically bad um, action in it, um, it also you know its space battle is a nice callback to the Wrath of Khan because they're flying around in like a nebula, so mm -hmm. it's got that. Um, F. Murray Abraham is the yes. <laughs> as the as the hilariously over the top villain is uh, is just great, just a ham, <laughs> really a ham. good. Um, and even though the the whatever else you can say, um, it, data. Anytime they drop data for whatever reason on some sort of like uh, underdeveloped planet and have him try to blend in with the locals, there, there's always some some good oh, yeah. hijinks, and so. Yeah. 
uh, I, all of that stuff for me as someone who's watched every episode of TNG, it just, it warmed my heart. Definitely, definitely. Do you think Nemesis is the worst one? Yeah, and I yeah. say that as a great um, fan of all things Tom Hardy. Definitely. Um, uh, but yeah, uh, you, you could have done that whole that whole movie without the whole weird subplot that there's like these monsters who live on another planet that we've never seen before. And right. you know, it's like just the, the Romulans are interesting. I mean, the the Romulans were the uh, you know the great uh, uh, spies and secret agents of the galaxy and you know and with a mis this mysterious government and this mysterious empire you know kind of having basically the same plot that you already had but just with the characters who we knew and loved from the show there, there's probably a way that could have been pulled off but instead they did it in the most uh, ham-handed way possible. Yeah, yeah. I was just gonna say, instead they did it the way they did it. <laughs> instead they did it the way that they did it, and it was <laughs> it was just uh, just really just really embarrassing uh, for everybody. For around. everybody, yeah. yeah. Oh man, um, yeah. Poor, 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 poor Tom Hardy. You know, he 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 had very kissable lips in that in that <laughs> one. But that's that's all I can say about his performance. Yes. Yes. Uh, well, I want to say thank you again for, for joining us. And I want to I, wrap up with a, a sort of very loose rapid fire round of a couple, a couple quick pop cultural topics as we wrap up here, if that's okay with All you. All right. Yep, absolutely. First one. Here we go. Mad Men or Breaking Bad? Ooh, uh, I guess Breaking Bad. Oh, I see. Yeah. Take that, Emmy Academy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't have a whole lot good to say about either of them, but um, I, if I'm going to, I don't know, if I'm going to watch a white male competence fantasy, I guess I'd rather watch one that's got drugs and violence in it. <laughs> Hell yeah. Okay. <laughs> Next one. Uh, I'm drawing on a Twitter thread that I tried to find of yours, but could not, uh, <laughs> but I'm going to set you up to just recreate it now and say to you, Paul Thomas Anderson or the Coen brothers? Oh, the, the Coen brothers. <laughs> yeah. No, Paul Thomas Anderson. G, G, GTFO. <laughs> <laughs> I, it was from a while ago, right, that you wrote a little bit about this. I want to say it was after Inherent Vice came out. Oh, you, you know this? what? It pro yeah, it probably was. Probably, probably comparing that to Lebowski. Probably, yeah. That, that oh, sounds, yes, yes, yes. That sounds like something that I that I would have done long after I should have gone to bed. <laughs> All right, next one uh, on the subject of film. Favorite Stanley Kubrick. Oh, Strange Love. Strange Love. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, f f far and away, maybe maybe the maybe the uh, best piece of English language. Uh, film that's ever been produced all right chill okay uh <laughs> uh and here here's me really setting you up is uh any thoughts on twin peaks season three? Oh god <laughs> all right i i, I i'm 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 a I, i'm not a david lynch fan um i i i think that uh I mean, Lynch did a lot of interesting things, and and God bless Twin Peaks for giving birth to the X Files and yes. in, in the way that it did in the culture, um, and you know, uh, and I, I can still watch Blue Velvet, I guess. Um, but um, 
the there is a um, there is a what people complain about about the Cohen brothers actually, which is that there is a degree of misanthropy that flows through it. I think is misplaced, but I'm going to level that accusation at David Lynch. I mm. think that there is a degree of misanthropy that I find really unappealing um, in his work, and I, I find him to be um, a, 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 a obscurantist and often cruel in ways that simply do not appeal to me. Um, and that I think give a um, a uh, veneer of um, uh, both aesthetic and intellectual sophistication to something that has a real film student stink all over it, um, yeah. as skillfully done as it often is. What I, uh, 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 the season three, well, I, I, I really liked the, the, the uh, implication that the, the sort of mid-century atomic tests were the thing that sort of released all of this sort of unspeakable evil um, mm -hmm. out into the world. I think that's a neat conceit. Um, I think that it took a lot of guts to put that into the, that insane dialogueless thing oh, into the middle of a, <laughs> of a TV series in yes. the year <laughs> 2019 or whatever, never came out. Um, but that having been said, I, I, I just, I, I just glaze over um, when I watch it. Um, you know, it, uh, give me, uh, give me David Thewlis in Fargo season three. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, there's, there's the unspeakable evil in the world. Um, yeah, really. I. I will say, as far as season three goes, I, I am on record as having liked it, but I did, I was like, I was on someone else's podcast once and I heard them refer to it as uh, his greatest work. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, can we like, can we unpack that for a little bit? Like, what is going on with that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm being unnecessarily harsh. I mean, you know, I like, there's things about Lost Highway that I like and things about Inland Empire that I like. I mean, there's a lot of stuff there that I like. It just, it, yeah. nothing, it none of it ever really coheres to me. Um, and it, it feels like it's something that's, that is, um, it, it feels like, it, it feels very superficial with just like constant intimations of depth to it that mm -hmm. so people can constantly spin their wheels talking about the depth when in reality, it's, it's nothing more than the, the superficies that, that you see when you, when you look at it for the first time. And uh, maybe that's okay, but n not for me. So right. David Lynch, YouTube, GTFO. <laughs> okay, final question for you today. The upcoming Dune movie. Can Villeneuve do it? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> I part. I kind of just want to end the episode right there. Just kind of just cut right after. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, you, it, whatever gets the, the whatever you want to leave on the cutting room floor is yours. Right. No, right. I, I, I'll. I'll. The the reason I'll tell you. Uh, why he can't do it, and and I'll tell you in in one word, and the answer is arrival. Ah, and yes. A, a movie that every that a lot of people really liked, um, and that I thought was complete horseshit, um, <laughs> and uh, and I I like the story that it's based on. I, I the, the 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 source material is pretty interesting. Not it's not my favorite, but it's pretty it's pretty good. But right. um, 
it, a movie that um, it, it just completely saccharine, goofy, like it, it, emotional manipulation and this sort of uh, pasted on like sense of wonder that that frankly was like not even as good as like the crap in Prometheus. Mm. Um, and I think that while I'm sure that Dune is going to look like a hundred million bucks because they're yeah. going to spend a hundred million bucks on the thing, and you know the it it's not it's not filmable yeah it, it, dune is not it, it, if it is it's got to be david lynch in his failed but interesting attempt to do it i mean yeah. it, it you got to do something totally different with it you you have to reimagine it in a way you got to get picard a pug and send him uh, screaming into battle um <laughs> You, the the book itself go go back to it and reread it if you haven't recently it, it it's a series of like uh goofy italicized internal monologues and and uh, and all this ecology and all of these things that are not gonna they're, they're not gonna work in a film so it's gonna be speaking of um superficies with the illusion of depth it's gonna they're going to recreate the dialogue really faithfully and some of the fanboys are going to really like it because it's going to look like Arrakis and I'm sure that right. the sandworms are going to look great and everything's going to look great and it's going to be cold and soulless and it's going to have none of the weird, uh, kinky strangeness of Frank Herbert's mid-century imagination. All that mm. stuff's going to have to get flattened out of it because it's totally racist and offensive. And so, <laughs> <laughs> so what you're going to be left with is going to be is going to be a boring space adventure. It'll be yeah. a, it'll be the most successful of the new Star Wars movies. Yes. <laughs> what did you think of that Blade Runner sequel that he did? Um, well, I watched it on an airplane um, back to the United States from Australia. So, and um, you loved it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I I loved the fact that Harrison Ford seems to have just shown up in his undershirt. Yes. Um, <laughs> That's true. Uh, I I felt about it. I I felt. I actually, I felt that it was fine. Sure. Um, I, I thought that it did a lot of things actually with the original Philip K. Dick story that that sort of got the, especially with the sort of environment and the 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 world, the the built world that um, really in a lot of interesting ways called back to to the um, to the Dick story um, that that got left out of um, of the original Blade Runner, um, but it had none of the the frisson, none of the, none of the tension, none of the, none of the strangeness right. Um, right. of the first one. Um, and again, it felt like, it, it felt like the world's most incredibly talented um, design and production team putting together the world's most impressive uh, 180 minute long lookbook. <laughs> Um, you know, I mean, the, I, I, the problem with all of these movies is that they're, none of them have good screenwriters. Right. You know, um, they, they, the, the mechanisms for producing the images have gotten more and more refined, but the capacity, um, to make, uh, movies, 
<laughs> to make yeah. films, especially films as a narrative art, you know, mm. like is just, it just at least in big commercial productions seems really like degraded to me anymore. Um, and so they just, they just fail to cohere at some really elemental level. Yeah. It's so funny you say that because I, I just finished reading, do you know this, this, the craft of the screenwriter book, this John Brady series of yeah. interviews mm -hmm. with like, yeah, yeah. I just finished reading that and it was just, I, my biggest takeaway from that book was, holy shit, it's so crazy that all six of these guys were writing movies at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there was a, you know, I, I hate to be nostalgic about it because um, nostalgia is usually a false emotion. But, it's embarrassing, yeah. Yeah, yeah <laughs> but, you know, there 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 really was, a, a I think, a period, uh, you know, I guess in the sort of the 70s, even into the early 80s, you know, where there was this real kind of golden age of uh, Hollywood screenwriting. Um that, I don't know, occupied this kind of strange space between, you know, the final collapse of whatever was left of the studio system and then the rise of our new studio system. Right. <laughs> um, where, um, where film as a narrative art really kind of hit its stride. Um, and and uh, where, uh, where movies kind of seemed like they really had come to occupy the place that, you know, uh, stage drama or, mm -hmm. you know, or opera or whatever had in prior epics um, occupied. And, and then, I don't know, and, and then George Lucas made Star Wars and fucked everything yes. up for the rest <laughs> of us forever. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so, that's so funny that's how the book uh that's how the book ends actually it's so funny <laughs> <laughs> i mean i guess this takes us back to the very beginning of this conversation which is to say that yeah if there was uh an inflection point at which everything reached its apogee and turned to shit for the you know western culture and uh the american society it was uh the release of um star wars episode four new hope <laughs> Man, when a thing dovetails like that, you have no choice but to say <laughs> <laughs> the episode is over. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we tied, tied it up. Well, Jacob, thank you so much for being so generous with your time with us here at Radio Free Brooklyn. Really appreciate it. Um, and, Absolutely. Uh, sorry, go ahead. No, it's, uh, it's uh, really been my pleasure. Um, it, was, uh, it was a great conversation. I was happy to, happy to do it. I'm so happy to hear that. And folks can follow you on Twitter at Jake Backpack. And uh, your novels, once again, are The Bend of the World and The Doorposts of Your House and On Your Gates. Uh, am I missing anything? Uh, no, I don't have anything to plug right now. Uh, stay tuned. I've got uh, two pieces forthcoming uh, in The New Republic. One, uh, a book review uh, of a book by someone who, if you're on Twitter, you love to hate, I'll leave it at that. And uh, one about uh, presidential elections as television shows. So sometime in the next couple of months. All right, that sounds, that sounds awesome. Uh, thank you again for talking with us, Jacob. I really appreciate it. All right, take care. Hi, this is Jimmy. Well, that's the end of the music, but it's not the end of the show. For those of you computer literate parrot heads out there, stick this CD into your computer and you can see an enhanced video of what we do and what we say backstage behind the scenes.